Welcome to Five Chapters Left, a historical and cultural spiritual inventory of where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going in regard to biblical prophecy. My name is Mandy. I'm a writing and rhetoric and cultural studies student, as well as an aspiring theologian. And this show is going to be sort of a, a long-running research project into something I call eschatological cultural studies, where I present theories as well as use this platform as a way to explore and develop new ones, hopefully starting a conversation that reintroduces spiritual cognition to our understanding of the world around us, as well as offering some possible explanations as to why it seems like everything is falling apart at the seams. Apocalyptic fear is really starting to manifest more and more in media and discourse, political discourse especially, as well as quite a few other areas. In fact, uh, just the other night, I saw Tunes for the Apocalypse trending on Twitter, and it made me laugh because of the irony of the timing with me trying to write this episode, as well as just like how sad it is. But I want to try and take hold of this fear and face it as we enter into a new decade. For those of you who don't know, eschatology is the theological study of the end of the world and all the fun stuff associated with it and it's theologically i guess the subject that interests me the most the book of revelation is pretty infamous for its gruesome descriptions of terrible monsters signaling the destruction of the world and everybody on it but the parables of these scriptures reveal a surprising amount of truth about how the human race is progressing as well as what sorts of things are propelling us towards the big final the end And this realization really hit me reading chapter 17, hence the title for this show, which there will be a future episode on, so please stay tuned. And the overarching questions I'm going to do my best to try and answer are, what does it really mean to be in the last days? How did we get here? And according to biblical text and the condition of the world around us, what's likely to come next? What hasn't happened yet? And what are some speculative theories as to why and how some of these things might come about? I noticed that we live by and often cling to hyperbole when it comes to spiritual matters, but these concepts aren't that hard to recognize and understand if you know what to look for. They aren't the result of erroneous judgments filling the space where critical thinking should be, or a lack of understanding the real world as colonial thought would suggest. The influence of the spiritual dimension of our lives can be seen empirically, and I intend to use this podcast to present evidence of this. But before we get into any topics, I really do want to be clear about what this podcast is not. Although I will understandably be using the Bible as a primary source quite a bit in this show, considering that it's the source containing the prophecy we're going to analyze, this show is not end of days apocalyptic evangelism. I think we've all had enough of that, and we are scared and frustrated enough as it is without all that going on. I plan on discussing why why I believe we are living in the biblical last days as objectively as possible. I won't act like the end of humanity isn't a scary topic, and I will warn that some of the subjects we're going to get into are on the heavier side, but fear-mongering and like manipulation do nothing to inform or start dialogue with anyone. It is completely counterproductive, and I do want to stay as far away from that as possible. This podcast is also not conspiracy theory fuel or a collection of sermons. Of course, I have my opinions and criticisms like anyone else. But it's not really my objective to tell anybody what to do or to take any colorful metaphorical pills. Like, no offense to the guy, but I am not an academic Alex Jones and I do not want to be. This podcast is also not exclusive to Christians. Any work I do is done for everyone and anyone. I consider myself a servant before anything else, and as a believer in Christ, it is my duty to take my talents and use them in service to others. And I do consider presenting information a service. 
And differing opinions and differing faiths especially are not a barrier here. And in fact, I really want to encourage the development of a healthy and diverse discursive community around this subject. Different perspectives promote healthy discourse. So please feel free to email me or write me on the Facebook page or tweet me if you have questions or if you disagree and you want to debate something you can or if you just want to talk about stuff, I'm totally down. I really do want to build a community and exchange ideas so that this project can grow and evolve. So now a bit about the theoretical framework I use in my research. I will continue to use and develop it as we go along. But overall, this framework supports the idea that all culture comes from a spiritual place within the human experience and the spiritual condition of human beings always manifests in culture in a variety of different ways. Everything that is influenced by culture is therefore influenced by human spirituality. And when you think about it, that covers a whole lot of different subjects. And I think you'll be as surprised as I was to see like just how many connections there are. And it should also go without saying that an interdisciplinary approach is necessary when discussing anything regarding culture and the spiritual components are going to demand even more academically intersectional thought. It's not enough to look at history or philosophy, political science, or even pop culture as individual entities because of how they all fold back into each other. The rhetoric around a topic is also really important. And in fact, I, as a rhetoric student, consider it to be equally as important as the topic itself. Rhetoric and content and subject matter are two halves of a discursive whole that I don't intend to separate in the show. But you may be asking, like, why do these things really need to be talked about? And why through a, like, a culture-centric framework with such a heavy emphasis on spirituality? Well, because spiritual decay is the root cause of the destruction of mankind, according to the Bible. And a lot of secular apocalyptic rhetoric follows this idea as well. There is no accurate way to talk about eschatological theories without considering the spiritual aspect of things. Talking about it from a like a spiritually insensitive perspective is the majority of the problem. You can't really fix or avoid or even like properly discuss an issue that's never acknowledged in the right way. And I think I should give a couple of examples now. And I will start with the one that actually made the biggest impact on me. So let's consider sorcery for a moment. Please bear with me. Um, sorcery is one of those practices in the Bible that's considered a destructive work of the flesh. It's listed in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 as such. It's interchanged in translation with witchcraft, which I think is really interesting, and it's considered to be a total abomination to God. Um, it's a practice that would have gotten you certainly, without a doubt, killed under Old Testament law. And when reading the Bible, not only is it important to consider the historical and cultural context of the narrative or the poetry or anything you're reading, it's equally important to consider the translation from the original language it was written in. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the original Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, with the root word pharma derived from pharmakon, meaning drug, poison, or spell. Now, how does that connect back to us today in the 21st century? Well, a very, very serious problem within party and club culture is putting stuff in people's drinks, especially women's drinks, to try and lower their inhibitions or disable them, usually for the purpose of sexually exploiting them. I don't think it's that crazy to label this practice as sorcery. Consider the original meaning of the word and the context in which it's used in the Bible. 
It is the use of a drug and a poison to control or create a desired effect on another person, which you could argue is a spell of sorts. And it was actually Mike Connell, who is a pretty well-known apostle from New Zealand, who was the first person I heard make this connection in the seminar I watched. And it really blew me away. I had never considered the accuracy of the translation between like a practice from such an ancient context to a more modern and contemporary one. And of course I was like, well, yeah, why wouldn't that be an abomination to God? It's an abomination to like me. That's one of the most morally reprehensible things you can do to another person. And I think when most people think of sorcery today, they might think of like a haggard old man in a creepy dungeon with his crazy chemistry set laughing maniacally as purple lightning shoots out of his hands. But hyperbolic caricatures like these misconstrue the nature of witchcraft and sorcery and perpetuate misconceptions and about those things and other spiritual taboos that really belittle the serious nature of spiritual matters. And that puts us at an extreme disadvantage when it comes to problem solving. It is my belief that if we acknowledged the spiritual nature of a particular problem, we'd be more invested in trying to solve it. We would have better tools and resources and would therefore have better solutions. It's not a guarantee, but maybe by recognizing acts like putting drugs in people's drinks as not only physically violating, but recognizing them as acts of spiritual malevolence. And if we understood that the damage inflicted cuts deep into the very essence of the victim's being, we'd probably be a lot tougher on sexual assault. That's why the theoretical framework I follow does recognize the influence of malevolent spiritual forces like demons and other principalities, as well as the influence of curses, because of how they contribute to social and cultural issues by inflicting spiritual damage on a micro and macro level. And this kind of analysis is going to be a large part of the content of this show and how all these different issues contribute to the apocalypse described in the book of Revelation. So now for another example, lynchings in the South. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 discuss not leaving bodies hanging up after they are hung up uh, for execution. This is back in a time when people were punished under Old Testament law, as well as they would go to battle and to like show signs of victory. They would kill the king and hang him usually. And this was a thing that they were warned against because of how it defiles the land. And I live in the South. I live in Florida. And I can tell you firsthand that race relations are not as great as the rest of the country likes to pretend. And there is a kind of defilement in the air left by the horrific violence that these lynchings like were. It was solidified in Southern culture by the brutalization of these people's bodies. Like they would, sorry, this is very graphic, but they would be hung. They would oftentimes be tortured before they died. After they died, they, their bodies would be riddled with bullet holes. And a lot of times they would leave the bodies hanging up as a warning to other African-Americans in the South. And it really does taint the atmosphere. And I do believe that that contributes to how hard fighting racism is in this country today. Um, another thing is that the spirit that we're talking about here in this framework, um, I like to use a visual metaphor of it's kind of like a hand that stretches out and interacts with the universe. I see spirit and soul conflated a lot, especially in Christian discourse. And I do want to say that there is a, a serious difference between the two. 
your soul theoretically is where you experience emotion and other psychological processes but your spirit is the mysterious third thing as one of my friends put it it's a third sensory system that i argue comes before cognitive and physical processing and I'm going to use a two-part theory to try and explain the mechanics of spiritual expression and then tie all that back to cultural studies. And these concepts are part of the foundation of the framework that we're going to be following throughout the show. So they will come up uh, quite, a f- quite a bit in the future. So we're going to talk about spiritual coherent superposition first. And I would like to take a quote from The Universal Christ, which is a book written by Richard Rohr, where he wrote... God is not somewhere out in the universe. Our universe is situated someplace within God. And I like this quote because of how it takes like the foreign concept of spiritual matters and kind of brings it home and situates us right in the middle of it. Like it was kind of foundational. It was here first and then we came into being. And I want to move to Genesis chapter one, verse two, where it says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And I wanted to bring out this verse because of how it shows that God is actually introduced to us as the Holy Spirit. And it was through his Spirit that everything was created, and it was through his Spirit where he said, let there be light, and divide the land from the sea, and all that jazz. And uh, by the way, whether or not all that happened within a few days is a debate for other people with a lot more time on their hands than I have. So I'm not going to get into that here. But moving on, since all things were created by the Spirit, all things are imbued with an inherent spiritual quality that I argue goes all the way down to a subatomic level. There exists a deep spiritual connection to God in every living thing, as well as every non-living thing ever created by him. Human beings, as the beings made in his image, have a nature that is extremely similar. It is sentient, it is powerful, it is foundational to our being. The spiritual nature that's imbued into non-living things is a very broad but interesting topic that we'll get into when discussing demons and curses and even the uh, the multifaceted nature and expression of prophecy, as well as a bunch of other things. But these connections form like a network, and the spiritual network between human beings and God is best described, I believe, by Swiss psychologist Carl Jung and his theory of the collective unconscious. And for those who are unfamiliar, Jung defined the collective unconscious as a second psychic system of a collective and universal and personal nature, which is identical in all individuals. And I believe that he says that this theory is, well, that this nature is expressed through repetitive archetypes. And Jung does a really great job of giving empirically based evidence of this through his research with schizophrenic patients and seeing how many of the delusions they were suffering from matched up with like ancient mythology from all over the world. And that was like a really crazy thing to read about. Um, he also said st- he also wrote about how dreams are one of the methods of the expression of these archetypes. And he defines an archetype using a lot of terms from uh, experts in both secular and theological fields, calling them motifs, um, representations, collectives, categories of the imagination, um, elementary or primordial thoughts. And I like this quote from the article I read where he writes, there are as many archetypes as there are situations in life. Endless repetition has engraved these experiences into our psychic constitution. 
not in the form of images filled with content, but at first only as forms without content, representing merely the possibility of a certain type of perception and action. So, I picture the collective unconscious as a network with a cable connecting from our spiritual being back to God. And that kind of visual metaphor gave me a deeper understanding of John 15 and 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, take note of this cable network um, metaphor because it is, it is going to come back a lot <laughs> as we go along. So Jung goes on to say that archetypes are not literal symbols and can only be identified by the behavioral byproducts of their psychological influence on an individual or group of individuals. So going off this, I would like to argue that archetypes are the themes of spiritual expression. They are messages sent through the spiritual cables connecting us. I believe they are intelligently designed and intentional in what they communicate to us. So to bring this all back to eschatology, chapter 6 of Revelation is where you read about the four horsemen. And each descriptive element tells us something important about what they represent. Uh, I want to ask, like, what message is communicated to us by the visual of the red horse that wouldn't be communicated if it was like a mule or some other riding animal? I believe that was a deliberate decision. And although both the red horse and the white horseman have weapons, what message is communicated by the white horseman having a bow versus the sword of the red horseman? And the breaking down and interpretation of this data is one of the base mechanics of prophecy itself. And when we read Revelation or Daniel or any of the other books with apocalyptic prophecy in it, to put it back in Jungian terms, it's important not to focus on the archetype for the archetype's sake. I feel like that's why and how biblical apocalyptic prophecy is taken more literally than it needs to be. It's important to remember that these are parables and that something substantial is being communicated beyond the surface of what's initially being said. So moving on, the ability to receive spiritual data via this deep spiritual connection to God is our greatest strength, in my opinion. And it is also the most overlooked quality we have. This connection is how we really connect to each other. It's how we make music and how we make art. It's how we engineer these incredible buildings and machines and come up with all these great ideas and concepts and aesthetics. It's how we find like joy in the world. It's how we perceive. It's like so many indescribable things. And all of our brilliant and passionate and creative qualities are hardwired into the eternal and infinite spirit of God. And we draw on his limitless capabilities a lot more often than we realize. Like, think about all the times you've had a really great feeling about something and then it turned out to be, like, super awesome and something that's changed your whole life or even something that, that just brought something great into your being. Or think about, like, the opposite where you've had, like, a really terrible feeling about something and in hindsight you saw that it was terrible or if you avoided it, like, it turned out to be, like, a serious bullet dodged. These are just some, like, casual examples off the top of my head, but there are so many more I could use. Um, another one is actually something I meant to save this as like a rhetorical artifact, but I saw this meme on Twitter quite a while ago and I meant to find it where it's, um, one of those like black Twitter memes where they're talking about how, like when you sneak out of the house, 
and your aunt has a dream and then calls your mom and then your mom goes to check in your room and then she sees you're not there and then you get in trouble for sneaking out i saw there were there were thousands of likes and thousands of comments where like other people were talking about like yes i've experienced this like it sucks when that happened and the fact that that's such a common experience means something substantial and i think it's important to realize that our spirit is an important sensory system and we we receive important information through the system unfortunately this connection is not as strong as it could be and this is just one of the many reasons like what jesus did on the cross is so substantial because in the beginning with like adam and eve in the garden the fall of man really damaged our connection and it left us vulnerable to interference. This is where we become vulnerable to demons and curses and even theoretically sicknesses enter into this like corruption in the connection. And Jesus repaired the damage and made it so that it basically never happened. And I want to take another quote from the Universal Christ where Aurora writes... Most of the perennial traditions have offered explanations, and they usually go something like this. Everything that exists in material form is the offspring of some primal source, which originally existed only as spirit. This infinite primal source somehow poured itself into finite, visible forms, creating everything from rocks to water, plants, organisms, animals, and human beings. Everything that we see with our eyes. This self-disclosure of whomever you call God into physical creation was the first incarnation, which he defines as the general term for any enfleshment of spirit. Uh, he goes on to say long before the personal second incarnation that Christians believe happened with Jesus. To put this in Franciscan language, creation is the first Bible, and it existed 13.7 billion years before the second Bible was written. And this corresponds with Romans uh, chapter 1 verse 20, where it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Another awesome quote from the Universal Christ, Roar writes, Everything visible without exception is the outpouring of God. What else could it be? Christ is a word for the primordial template through whom all things came into being and not one thing had its being except through him. And that corresponds with John chapter one, verse three. So now on to part two of the theory, um, Adam Adamski wrote a very interesting article about archetypal expression. And he was able to explain how it kind of functions using something called quantum psychology, which I didn't even know was a thing before I started my research. And it was some mind-blowing stuff. I cannot believe I found this and I was able to learn about it. It's crazy. So this theory is spiritual coherent superposition. And before I explain this, I do want to say that I am probably as far from a quantum physicist as you can get, but I will do my best to explain this. So this is a theory. Well, coherent superposition is a theory um, as to how we can exist as both material and like spiritual at the same time. Um, coherent superposition is part of the Copenhagen interpretation. And this interpretation explains um, why the same quantum particle may act in different ways. And many physicists today still believe it to be true. And the interpretation states that 
a quantum particle doesn't exist in one state or another at any given time, but it exists in all possible states at once. And the act of observing the state of this particle forces it to choose one probability. And that state is what we see when we look at it. And the state of existing in all possible states at once is that particle's coherent superposition. And I want to tie that to chapter three of a book called Mystic Awakening by Adrian Beale. And he does a really good um, explanation theologically of this. And he cites Genesis chapter 28 verse 12 where it says, and this is the um, literal translation, and he dreameth lo a ladder set upon the earth and its head is touching the heavens and lo, messengers of God are going up and coming down by it. And I believe this ladder is a visual metaphor for spiritual coherent superposition. This ladder is also a visual metaphor for Jesus himself being the connection between God and humanity, heaven and earth. But I propose that this ladder is the light that God used as the foundation of all creation. Jesus being the light of the world, as stated in John chapter 8 verse 12, takes on a new important dimension when you think about it from this perspective. And this ladder um, is also how I believe miracles happen. And also like how the gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 7 through 12 operate. So a quote from Adamski's article on Young and quantum psychology, he writes, a quantum individual is the same as an anatomical and physiological one, only living in a world of quantum dimensions, which kind of reaffirms the duality I'm talking about here. Um, the guts of this um, spiritual coherent superposition theory um, can be kind of, I guess, summarized by this quote from him, where he says, physical evidence suggests that living matter has a quantum logic, which enables the optimal use of information from the environment to its own stability and to escape from chaos. The matter itself is therefore a logical consequence of the information flowing continuously from the universe and the earth in the form of coherent light. Biological material grows rapidly in the electromagnetic field, wherein the result of field coupling and coherent states of matter create the process of life required. This means that biological matter creates a system that absorbs electromagnetic pulses, pulses sorry, and stores and uses them to create permanent psychobiological structures. And it is the part where he says in the form of coherent light. So if we're going to go back to the network metaphor, this coherent light is like the electricity running through the cables, carrying archetypal data to the spirit, running through the soul and into the physical body where it can be read and processed and eventually expressed. And this is theoretically how spiritual things manifest behaviorally, even physiologically on a micro level and also culturally on a macro level. And I want to give some examples of each. So I was able to find several articles talking about how trauma and PTSD can change the shape of your brain. And I do have those articles listed in the archive for those who are interested. And that's a micro example. On a macro level, you've got things like McCarthyism. And that's obviously more behavioral. And it's a complicated thing when you think about it from that perspective because of how it's like 
a repeated pattern. And that's the thing about archetypes is that they're repeated. What happened with the Red Scare was just one out of many incidents like that. You had the Salem Witch Trials, you had the Spanish Inquisition. This has happened many, many times over and over again. And I do think it's safe to say that this is some kind of spiritual expression because of the repetition of the pattern, as well as like the similarities in what was happening. And it seemed like communist was just replaced with witch, which was just replaced with, I think, werewolf in France at one time. Like this has happened again and again and again. Um, an example that's kind of a combination of like micro and macro levels is destructive trends observed in adolescent girls, like cutting and bulimia and other things. I remember when I was in middle school, cutting was a really big thing and there, I've seen articles about it. And I remember, I think back in the fifties and sixties, hysteria was affecting adolescent girls. And again, going back to the Salem witch trials, um, a lot of the girls that were afflicted by these nightmares and terrors and apparitions were all adolescent girls. So I do think that this is another archetype that's being expressed. Um, just like any other system, like our bodies or our minds or anything, spirits can be wounded and damaged too. And that damage is visible through um, behavior and different things like that. And the causes are also diagnosable, like with damage to any other system. And there are spiritual contagions, just like how there are biological ones. And I like to think of, well, I like to explain spiritually malevolent forces, like demons or whatever, as like spiritual germs. And you could think of curses as like spiritual terminal illnesses um, and I guess spiritually negatively charged objects as like spiritually radioactive because of how they break down healthy spiritual faculties. And there are plenty of practical applications of this framework that go beyond the theological sphere. The concept of spiritual damage on its own is very relevant to the fields that specialize in different forms of care like mental health and especially drug rehabilitation. And think about how this framework could change how we combat criminality and how we could improve like penal institutions. And these are just like two off the top of my head. So moving on, this um, spiritual breakdown and decay is at the core of apocalyptic biblical prophecy because it essentially is what has sealed our fate. And when you look at history through the framework I've described here, there are so many contributing factors as to why our collective demise is expected to be such an intense catastrophe. And we're going to apply this framework to major events in history, cultural patterns, and other collective spiritual circumstances and place them within this new context and do our best to try and identify logical connections between the extreme imagery and the cultural circumstances we find ourselves in today. There is way too much to be explored for it to be contained in a bunch of articles or even a book like I originally wanted to do and a podcast kind of seemed like just the best option. Each episode is going to be like a, a page out of history where we take a look at what's happening culturally and how those things contribute to the overall story of the end of days. And what I ask from you, the listener, is that you please give the show a chance. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. I get it. I won't be offended and there's no real way I can make you stay. But... I am trying to challenge master narratives here about spirituality and reveal some connections about the extreme claims made in the Bible about like how the end of the world is going to come about and the like ever mounting social problems of today. And if I'm successful, I would like to 
leads you to see the social problems of today in a way that will promote kind, intuitive, and sensitive problem solving. I firmly believe that we are spiritual beings at the end of the day, and the erasure and belittling of this nature has led us to neglect that part of ourselves, and the consequences can be seen all around us. So, let's talk about it as openly, objectively, and as honestly as possible while we still can, like while we still have five chapters left. So please, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.